Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 39, Ruling the Angevin Empire. Right, so fresh from the shores of the Adriatic, let me go back to Henry II, who we introduced in the last episode. This week I thought we'd talk about how Henry went about ruling his empire. There is of course a generally held popular history of England, a kind of agreed summary of what happened and what was important and interesting. In general, I'd also say it could be described as a kind of Whiggish view of history, i.e. the idea that the history of England is an inevitable, linear progression leading to where we are now. And all the scholarship, all that fantastic history, TV, and all that sort of thing that managed to change some of the details, but a pretty much zip impact on that central folk history. So why am I warbling on about all of this? Well, all that blathers really just to say that Henry II, in our folk history, is generally thought of as a good king, insofar as he's thought of at all, and quite rightly so. That he's a good king, I mean. But it strikes me that he would have scared the living daylights out of me. And as we talk about his empire, let us never forget that this guy was an absolute tyrant. Working for this bloke would have made working for Alan Sugar look like a cakewalk. He was not much liked in his time, actually and was apparently a very difficult man to know. We are quite unusually blessed with sources for the period, with people like Walter Mapp and Peter Bois, who knew Henry and his court directly. I've reproduced Peter's description of Henry on the website, that would be the historyofengland.com website, BTW, and it's well worth reading. It's quite clear that Henry is an exemplary character, but he was an absolute monarch well before any such phrase had been invented, because, quite frankly, contemporaries would have wondered, well, what other kind of monarch was there anyway? But he was quite extraordinarily volatile, liable to blow up into rage at any time. And such a rage could signal the end of your fortune, your career, or possibly your life. 
Actually, this volatility was a crucial tool of kingship. As we noted a few weeks ago, medieval kingship is an intensely personal thing. It's about managing an elite set of very powerful people, the barons. To be effective, you just need to keep them on the hop. These barons also needed a constant reminder about who was the boss, and that he knew exactly what they were thinking of doing. There's a lovely anecdote from the period which illustrates it for me really well. I'm not quite sure why, but I'll try it on you so that you can see. So let me introduce you to Hugh of Avalon, who became Bishop of Lincoln, and indeed Saint Hugh. And he was an uncompromising old geezer, who rather won Henry's affection for his relentless openness and refusal to pull any punches. A good demonstration of Hugh's attitude towards kings was that when he died, after talking to King John, his last words were apparently to ask God's forgiveness for having held back in some of his criticisms of them. A pretty uncompromising bloke. Anyway, he made the faux pas of excommunicating a royal officer, a forester, and was therefore very much out of Henry's good books. So old Hugh turned up at Woodstock at the royal court, but Henry ignored him, and furthermore, he told everyone else to ignore him as well, which is pleasingly childish, actually. So there they are on the hunt, King and his earls sitting in the forest having lunch, Hugh hovering round on the outside of the circle, feeling a bit awkward. But anyway, nothing daunted, Hugh eased an earl out of his seat next to the king. He tapped Henry on the arm to get his attention, but Henry continued to give him the cold shoulder and started to stitch up a leather bandage on his finger. Heavy silence. But Hugh was having nothing of it and tugged at his coat to get his attention and said, Hmm, I like your cousins of fillets you look. Horrified silence. Fortunately, Henry burst into laughter to the extent of rolling around on the ground. The joke, of course, was an insult, a reference to Henry's ancestry to William the Bastard and William's mother, who was a common leather worker in Falaise. Now this closeness between the king and his subjects to some degree extended beyond the baronage. Everywhere he goes, Henry is hassled. There's a lot of touching going on. When he arrived anywhere, the king would be buffeted, pulled and pushed by petitioners and litigants. Think of a football team coming home after a massive victory and trying to push their way through the crowd, that sort of thing. And the point of all these anecdotes? I guess you've probably heard of the Latin tag primus inter pares, i.e. first amongst equals. This is a phrase that can be very much used about the Anglo-Saxon kings, for example, and the early medieval kings in England. Yes, they've now acquired a theocratic patina from their anointing by the church at their coronation. But the relationship is nothing like it was in Byzantium or in the later Roman Empire, where there's a where there's a massive distance between the ruler and the ruled, governed by a complex set of protocols and rules. We'll start to see that really kick off with Richard II in the 14th century, but no, at this stage, government is personal. The king and his great men. Your relationship with the king is paramount. If he trusts you, you can get away with a lot like St Hugh. If you don't, you're knackered. Also, just one more point. Henry may be a giant of English history, but he's not a superman, he's just a bloke. To manage his barons with an empire of this size, Henry had to travel like a madman. Everything in the king's household, i.e. pretty much the whole administrative apparatus of the medieval state, was portable. His court was constantly on the move, with no time to sit still. There are now some fixed places of government administration, the treasury at Winchester, the exchequer at Westminster, for example, but it's personal relationships that matter. Meanwhile, Henry spent no time at all trying to make it easy for his household to keep up. Here's Peter of Blois, describing how it all went. 
If the king has said he will remain in a place for one day, he's sure to upset all the arrangements by departing early in the morning. And you see men dashing about as if they were mad, beating pack horses, running carts into each other, in short, giving a lively imitation of hell. I believe in truth he took delight in seeing what a fix we were in. And after wandering some three or four miles in an unknown wood, often in the dark, we thought ourselves lucky if we stumbled across some filthy hovel. Poor Peter. Despite his obvious admiration for the king, he hated court life. The life of court, he wrote, is death to the soul. Forward planning for the court was actually essential. Members of the household were sent ahead to prepare the next destination. We get an idea of exactly how much travelling from King John's reign, since the surviving records allow us to follow his movements very closely. On average, John's court moved 13 or 14 times a month. So on average, you got to stay in the same place for a couple of days. Often the whole court would just sleep under the stars, but they would aim whenever possible to rock up at a royal hall somewhere that could put them up more comfortably. And sometimes they'd stay with one of the king's vassals. For the king's vassals, this was a genuinely terrifying and potentially disastrous experience. I mean, a great honour and all, but... Well, there are a lot of similarities to the proverbial plague of locusts. There were rules, so if a king stayed more than 24 hours, he'd have to start paying. Otherwise, he'd end up ruining the relevant lord. Besides, they had to move on to find better hunting for the king. The state of travel, and therefore the speed of communication in the 12th century, generated massive problems in ruling the empire. I had the honour of being taught by a bloke called Geoffrey Parker, who wrote a fascinating book called The Army of Flanders and the Spanish Road, 1567-1659. to His thesis was all about the impact that slow communications had on Spanish strategy in the Spanish Netherlands, i.e. if it takes you three weeks to get a message to your local commanders, and indeed six weeks for an event to happen, and then for you to be able to get an answer to them, You'd better A, have commanders who know what they're doing and can be trusted, and B, be damn sure that an enemy doesn't cut your channel of communication. But what, I hear you ask, has the 16th century Spain got to do with Henry? Well, there is a parallel in both regards, I think. First of all, there's a point that he needed barons he could trust, or be around so much that they stayed trustworthy. And secondly, Henry needed to keep control of the key strategic places in his empire. The various components of Henry's empire needed different levels of attention. Once he dealt with the chaos of the anarchy by, say, 1160, England probably appeared a relatively stable bit that didn't need too much management. It was administratively centralised. And the same applied to Normandy. Anjou, Maine and Touraine, which together are usually referred to as Anjou, were strategically essential to the whole empire, slap bang in the middle of it. And though traditionally the Counts of Anjou had struggled to control their barons, they were now reasonably on board. So Anjou was one of the hearts of the empire, particularly the treasury of the great castle of Chinon. Brittany and Aquitaine were really different. Brittany was held as a fief of Henry, and not held directly by him. It has many physical similarities as Wales, as it happens, with a mountain and easily defended heart, and Henry's claim to overlordship was pretty suspect, which meant he had to spend a considerable amount of time and effort to establish his rights there. And Aquitaine was also very different, very fractious. Remember that it's held by right of Eleanor, not directly by Henry. It's not a centralised state in the manner of England or anywhere close to it. There was a tradition of independence from the Dukes of Aquitaine and a tradition of internal rivalry. So, for example, one of the great families were the Lusignan, 
who were big noises in Outremer as well, and who struggled constantly with the Counts of Angoulême for local supremacy. There was much less by way of ducal administration. While England had its sheriffs, Normandy its vicomte, Aquitaine just had its barons. Most of the nobility of Aquitaine thought Henry was a jumped-up jerk who should leave them alone. They were extremely suspicious of all these attempts to make them toe the line and do what they were told. So they needed constant and exhausting attention. Going back to that point about the importance of communications, there were a few key strategic points that controlled communication throughout the empire, and control of these was vital to both communication and indeed vital to anybody wanting to invade. So when warfare does flare up, it tends to be in these three areas, though obviously not completely exclusively. The first of these areas is the Vexin, on the east of Normandy, which we've heard about so much. The second is along another river, the Loire. If the French king could capture the castles along the Loire, he would control Anjou, and the Angevin Empire would again be cut in two and be unmanageable. And the other is a county called Berry. This lies to the southeast of Anjou, and its important was again the confluence of a series of roads which controlled communication between the Angevin north and with Aquitaine. Henry and Louis would struggle continually to define who controlled this area as well. So with these issues in mind, Henry travelled madly. As it happened, his aristocracy were very often in exactly the same position. They too had scattered estates and had to travel widely, although that would be within England, within Aquitaine. The one big area where barons shared land on both sides of the Channel was of course still only England and Normandy. But when they did travel, the retinue with the king or a major lord would have looked like a carnival, and Henry of Huntingdon reflected the excitement that would be generated by one of these glittering households appearing in the neighbourhood when he wrote, It's no wonder that crowds of women and youths or men of the frivolous type rush out to see kings. But even wise and discreet men are driven out to go and watch them. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So how difficult was communication and travel at the time? The most efficient way of moving around was by water, sea or river, but of course most places weren't accessible by a navigable river, so hated or loathe it, the road was absolutely essential. And the road was genuinely rotten. The best of them were still the old Roman roads, now over 800 years old, such as Ermine Street going north, Watling Street running south to east to the northwest, and the Fossway, running southwest and northeast. But most routes were muddy and often impassable for carts and wagons, especially in bad weather, covered with potholes, since most routes weren't surfaced. The medieval English did try to do something about it. 
so the main routes were very wide, up to a quarter of a mile in some places, which allowed travellers to cut different paths along them. Ordinances were passed to keep the undergrowth cut back to keep things safe from ambush, but the story wasn't good. If you needed any information to move quickly, a horseman was your thing, and they could probably cover, let's say, 25 miles a day. But pack horses and carts could manage a maximum of 12 miles a day. A detailed study of King John's court showed that this is pretty much what he managed, 12 miles. This would gradually improve, since we see Edward I in 1300 managing about 19. And there are some signs of improvement already, through the conversion of some bridges to stone. There are examples at Durham, London and Oxford, for example. But usually, you'd find a rickety wooden bridge or a ford. The importance of these bridges is obviously absolutely crucial. And it's made clear from the inclusion of the responsibilities of bridge work in centuries of Anglo-Saxon law codes. Road travel could also be dangerous, and nobles would take armed men with them. Lawlessness was a continual problem in medieval England, which Henry would work hard to overcome, and the roads were a very tempting target, hence the orders to keep the undergrowth cut well back from the road. But robbers were cunning. In 1159, one popular format was for robbers to disguise themselves as monks, attach themselves to unsuspecting parties of travellers, and then lead them into an ambush. Finding a way around as well was also something a bit of a challenge. Maps did exist at the time, but they weren't there to be used for anything as practical as getting somewhere, dear me, no. They were normally exotic things, used as a conversation piece about foreign parts. Usually you'd get somewhere by asking people for directions along the way. Henry and his court are of course constantly crossing the channel. Even William the Conqueror had crossed over 17 times in his 21 years on the English throne, and Henry crossed it at least 28 times. The journey itself should, in theory, only have taken a few hours, certainly less than a day. But the journey was pretty risky, and there are examples of journeys taking several days in bad weather. By Richard's time, the king has this all sorted out, and he's got his own ore-powered galleys available to take him to and fro. But up to his day, they'd have used ships from any of the ports along the southern coasts. The 12th century, incidentally, saw the increasingly wide use of a newly improved ship called the Cog, which gradually replaced the Viking-style ships during the century. The Cog had a single central sail and a sturdy and spacious construction, with the particular northern innovation of a stern-mounted rudder. If you wanted to use a thing for war, you could also add a forecastle and stern castle back and front. These raised platforms gave you a spot to fire arrows at your enemies, of course. The cog became the new workhorse to trade in the early medieval period, spreading even to the Mediterranean, where it's called the Kosha. Why? Well, it had a bigger cargo capacity. It was flat-bottomed, which meant it would settle better in harbour when the tide went out, and therefore be easier to load and unload. And its higher sides made it easier to defend against pirates. As a king, no doubt the journey across the Channel would have been comfortable enough. For the mass of the population, travelling at sea could be deeply crowded and uncomfortable, particularly with the toilet arrangements. Cramped together in small spaces, travellers would be provided during the night time with a clay pot to serve as a urinal. Very handy. The problem was that at some point the thing would inevitably get knocked over, and if you happened to be close by, the results just wouldn't be great. During the day, you'd use the seats of mercy at the bow of the ship, and effectively just hang your naked backside over the side. But if the weather was bad or stormy, Basically, you had no option but to just find a place under the deck. All of this means that the whole travelling by sea thing was usually a dirty, crowded and smelly experience. 
So, Henry's enormous energy to some degree allowed him to cope with the problems of ruling a large and disparate empire. But he recognised that it was impossible for him to rule effectively with just this. So, as with so many other things, Henry looked back to his grandfather Henry I and took his inspiration there. You may or may not remember that under the elder Henry, a three-tier system of government had evolved. The king at the top, the justicia, and then the local royal officials. And Henry went back to this approach and applied it to his larger empire. He was very careful to make sure that he didn't accept local sensibilities, and he uses the terminology of each of the territories, which means the whole thing doesn't look like a terrible innovation to each locality, which is a good thing, because your average medieval man is not big on change. In fact, as far as they're concerned, change is a four-letter word. As you can tell, their spelling wasn't great either. The king's officers remained broadly as they were in Henry's time. So they're the sheriff, the foresters and the bailiffs. But while Henry clearly built on his grandfather's ideas, he should absolutely be given credit for the strength and independence of the system he built. So now we're entering a period of history where we can talk about individuals in government who are not the king. It's not Prime Minister of time, of course, but maybe it's the first twinkling of that system which would later emerge. These blokes had different titles, again, depending on their locality. Justicia in England, Seneschal in Normandy, for example. Just like the tier below had different titles. So, Sheriff in England, Vicomte in Normandy, Prévost in Aquitaine. Some of the problems with the third tier of royal officials is they had a tendency to become controlled by the local nobility, to become hereditary, and therefore not really controlled by the king. So Henry was absolutely ruthless in establishing that he was boss. For the first time, he also makes sure that people understand this is a professional job, not just a way of rewarding his mates and followers. That to be said, he didn't quite start out that way. So his first series of appointments in 1155 and 1162 did tend to be the same old lot, earls, bishops and the like. But the result was lots of local complaints about financial oppression and unfair exactions. Now, Henry might have been a tyrant, but he didn't like the thought of there being other tyrants about, i.e. local tyrants. Though in 1170, he sent out his justices to investigate all the royal officials in the shires. The result was in modern parlance that almost all of the sheriffs were let go, downsized, given new opportunities. You know what I'm saying. They were replaced with men connected with the royal court. We're groping slowly towards a professional civil service. That was a long, long way to go, of course. But Henry maintains a clear principle that it's the office, not the man, that's important. Within the limitations of the communication issues we've talked about, the administration built by Henry was very efficient and was able to outlast the fall of the empire. There's been a tendency to think about England as the centre of all of this, so to see England as the well-governed bit and the rest as a bit of a shower. That's because so much less stuff has survived from the French possessions, but certainly it's very unlikely that Normandy was any less efficiently governed, and very probably Anjou as well. Henry's justiciers and seneschals now did have the capability of doing things on their own. As it happens, we see the justicia chasing all over the empire to get decisions from Henry. But once decisions had been made, then stuff just gets done. Much of this efficiency was centred around collecting lots of money, of course. Henry does a good job collecting money. Throughout his reign, there's a steadily rising average, with the odd annual fluctuation. Some of this is inflation, but much is just getting the stuff in better. In terms of scale, by the way, the average annual revenue, 1163 to 1174, is about £18,500. The tax of the Anglo-Saxon kings, the Geld, is slowly disappearing. 
Henry uses it only three times, and 1162 is the last time we hear about the title Geld, although it's not the last levy of a land tax. Mostly he uses feudal dues, scootage, wardship, that sort of thing, but in the finest tradition of tyranny, he also just tells people to give him money. There's a feudal precedent for this. They're called gifts, or donor. Throughout his reign, Henry is constantly imposing such gifts on pretty much anybody he can find. The newest form of taxation is actually devised by the church, driven by events far away in Outremer. In 1187, Saladin won his massive victory at Hattin, and to the horror of all Christendom, Jerusalem fell. Henry allowed the Pope to raise a tithe, called the Saladin Tithe, to raise money for the defence of Outremer. This was a 10% tax on individuals' movable property and revenue, and would soon be recognised as a much more fo- and would soon be recognised as a much more effective form of taxation than land taxes. And I suppose that at the end of this particular line is our much-loved income tax, first levied under that name in England in 1798, in the US in 1861, and in China in all 10 years BC. So, I think that's probably enough about Henry for one week. But before I go, just a few things to catch up on. Firstly, there's a bit for all you economic history nuts. In the episode about economic development, I made the comment that there's little productivity change in the 12th century England. Generally speaking, this is still true, but there are a couple of things I did miss. One of these is the fulling mill. Fulling is the process of cleaning the wool and preparing it to be made into yarn, and the fulling mill gets introduced into Normandy and England in the late 11th and early 12th century. The other thing is the developing use of the horse. Horses were of course known in Anglo-Saxon England, but their use in agricultural work was limited to being pack animals and perhaps in harrowing. The dominant work animal on the farm was consequently the ox, both for ploughing and for hauling. Even by the time of the Doomsday Survey in 1086, the proportion of horses on domains was only about 5% of all the draft animals. However, the centuries leading up to the year 1000 gradually saw a number of improvements in horse traction, and this began to transform the effectiveness of the horse. The biggest single example was the hard, padded horse collar. All of these changes meant that by the early 12th century, horses were becoming much more evident for ploughing and hauling. And there's a peculiarly medieval innovation, which is the use of mixed plough teams of horses and oxen together. This practice, i.e. replacing the front oxen in the plough team with horses, increased the speed of the plough without sacrificing the power that oxen supplied in low-speed situations. There is a question about whether or not the horse really increased productivity. So yes, horses are faster, but the main point was they were much more cost-efficient. They were cheaper to buy, and they were much more flexible. You could use them for hauling and travel as well. Both these innovations, the fulling mill and the horse, had an impact, but more to the level of a quiet evolution rather than a dramatic revolution. Second thing to do is that I must keep up the book recommendation thing. So for the Angevin period... And for those of you who like their history with plenty of stuff about personalities involved, I'm going to recommend Alison Weir's book, Eleanor of Aquitaine, by Wrath of God, Queen of England. It's as much about Henry and his family as it is about Eleanor, given the paucity of chroniclers who spend any time talking about Eleanor, and it's a really fun read. And then, horror of horrors, I'm going to recommend a historical novel for my Anglo-Saxon book, which is Death of Kings, the latest in Bernard Cornwall's Anglo-Saxon series. Without wanting to be in any way dogmatic, you will not find a better series of historical novels, period. I've only just managed to start this last offering, but it's clearly shaping up to be every bit as good as all the others in the series. So thanks for listening, and good luck till next week. (laughs) 